Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. Heavenly Father, we just pray this morning that you would open our eyes. We pray that you would uncover great things for us. In particular, we pray that you would uncover the future for us. And we pray that you would make it simple and understandable and that it would be a great encouragement to stand firm for your glory. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, please do sit down. And uh, as you're sitting down, if you could uh, make sure that you'll turn back to the chapter from Luke's Gospel we had read to us earlier, chapter 21. And our passage begins at verse 5. Um, also, amongst the things you were given on the way in is a, is a handout. It uh, looks like this. And uh, that will help you to know when the end is coming, at uh, the end of the sermon, anyway. Uh, So do take hold of that, if you would like. I was out shopping with uh, Catherine a little while ago, uh, which is something I tend to avoid doing too often, I have to admit. But I was doing all right, I think. Um, I'd had a minor wobble in Marks and Spencer and the men's department, trying to interest myself in, uh, well, Catherine did something or other somewhere else in the building, but failing, more or less and uh, finding that the will to live slowly ebbing out of me as I looked through the knitwear. But it was nothing too serious so far. Uh, It was only really when we went to buy some Christmas cards that things started to go really wrong. Uh, We're buying cards because we'd run out of time uh, to make any this year, Uh, but it was a desperate thing to do, uh, choosing Christmas cards. You must have faced this problem too this year. Um, The only vaguely Christian ones we found were, were of three kinds, I found. Either there was a scene of a stable... Uh, the stable, as you may know, being a myth that's not in the Bible. Or there are pictures of three kings on camels. Again, that's another myth that's not in the Bible. Uh, or there were pictures of doves, uh, often accompanied by a, of, uh, a quotation out of context from Luke uh, chapter 2, verse 14, peace on earth, or, or some such like that. And it was these cards in particular which had me splutteringly with indignation. So I'm grateful for the opportunity this morning to, to expose the myth that Christmas or Christianity is all about peace in our time. As Paul was mentioning earlier, this is the season of Advent when Christians have traditionally focused their thoughts not on Christmas, not on the first Advent, the first coming of the Lord, but on the second Advent, uh, the return of Jesus uh, to judge the world and at the end of all things. And to help us to focus on that this morning, we're going to turn to this amazing speech of Jesus's in Luke chapter 21. And I think we'll find this very helpful because the disciples that Jesus is addressing needed to do what we need to do. Uh, They needed to rethink their hopes for peace and come to terms with the brutal reality of the world that they lived in. Now, having said all that, it is true that their hopes about the future were perhaps a little different from our hopes about the future. Uh, You'll hear people talking very generally about our hopes for world peace. Uh, But their hopes about the future, uh, you can see even here, were very much focused on a particular place, uh, the city of Jerusalem. I suspect that we might find that a little difficult to empathize with at first. After all, I know that we like Sheffield, for example, And when people move here, they tend to stay here. And we may even have some hopes for Sheffield in the future, a high-speed rail link 
Or, or even maybe, just maybe, our own Ikea one day. <laughs> uh, let's just pause for a moment to ponder that possibility. But I doubt that Sheffield as a city is the primary focus of our future hope. But for the people of Israel, Jerusalem was the very contact point between heaven and earth. Change, if change had to happen on the earth, then change had to begin in Jerusalem. They, they were right in that, as it turned out, although not quite in the way they were expecting. At the beginning of Luke's Gospel, we can see a little about how they were expecting that to happen. So when the newborn Jesus was presented at the temple, Luke describes one of the things that happened like this. this is, I've got this on the handout. This is Luke chapter 2 and verse 38. The prophetess Anna came up and began to thank God and to speak about Jesus to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. That is where their hopes and focus was on. However, ever since uh, chapter 9 of Luke's Gospel, ever since Jesus himself has been heading resolutely for Jerusalem, it has become increasingly obvious that this visit is not going to be a happy and peaceful one. So much so, in fact, that this is what Jesus said as he approached the city. This is chapter 19, Uh, from verse 41. As Jesus approached Jerusalem, he saw the city, he wept over it and said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now peace is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls, They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. I think we can see the same kind of pattern at the beginning of our passage this morning. So the Christmas card-like platitude is there in verse 5. So some of his disciples were remarking about how the temple was adorned with beautiful stones with gifts dedicated to God. The shiny new temple, not quite finished yet, but this shiny new temple at the center of the city, all gleaming marble, uh, covered with gold and silver uh, gates and doors and plates, all generously provided by the rich people of the city. That temple stands, if you like, like a beacon of hope for the disciples. But that kind of hope is almost brutally pulled down by Jesus here. Verse 6, as for what you see here, The time will come when not one stone will be left on another. Every one of them will be thrown down. Hence, uh, what I suspect was a very anxious question that you can see there in verse 7. The disciples respond, when will these things be? What will be the sign? Now for the disciples at the time, of course, that was a question about the temple. But it does prompt this long speech from Jesus about the future, which goes, as we'll see, way beyond that. It takes us from the temple to the whole of Jerusalem and indeed to the whole of the earth and beyond. Now it is not, as you will have already noticed, a straightforward answer that Jesus gives. But one part of the answer is very clear And very simple, and that's what we're going to focus on this week. When will these things be? Jesus' answer is basically this. Not yet. 
Even when Jerusalem falls and the temple is no more, the answer is still not yet. Now, next week, we're going to turn to some of the harder parts of the speech, especially from verse 20 onwards. But for the moment, I want to make sure that we don't miss the obvious here, the straightforward things here. First, that knowing that the end is not yet, that we shouldn't be led astray. And then related to that, knowing that that, that before the end, there will be trouble, there will be suffering that we should not fear, but rather seize the opportunity, standing firm in our witness. So then first, the end is not yet. Look at verse 8 with me. Watch out that you are not deceived, says Jesus. For many will come in my name claiming I am here and the time is near. Do not follow them. In other words, to say that the time is near is deception. It's crystal clear again in verse 9. It's quite explicit. The end will not come right away. Jesus couldn't put it more simply or clearly. Now, what time or end is Jesus talking about here? Well, as Jesus continues in the speech, it becomes apparent that he has more than the end of of Jerusalem or the temple in mind. You can see from verses 20 to 24, if you glance through them, that even when Jerusalem does fall, there is more to come. There's what Jesus calls the times of the Gentiles, to be completed. What's more, by the time there are explicit signs that the end time is just about to happen, it will be too late. Uh, You can see that the kind of end time signs mentioned in verse 25, for example, happen at pretty much the same time, verse 27, as the coming of the Son of Man in glory. Uh, We'll have more on that next week. But even now we can pick up from verse 34, for example, that the end will come quite suddenly. And Jesus warns the disciples that if they're unprepared for it, that it's going to close on them unexpectedly, like a trap. So I hope you can begin to see um, what Jesus is doing here. He's lifting the eyes of the disciples away from their very narrow and limited expectations about the future to something that is bigger and greater and more important. But as he does that, it is important that he, he, ref- he does refuse to give an explicit answer to their question. That neither the surface question in verse 7 nor the question that they should have been asking about the end of all things. When will these things happen? Jesus doesn't say. Jesus doesn't say the temple is going to fall in August AD uh, 70, which it did. He also doesn't give a date for the end of all things. All he says is, not yet. But while I guess it might frustrate us to have that information withheld from us, I think we can understand why it has been withheld from us. It is for our benefit that it has been withheld from us. Now, you would understand this very readily if you were a government inspector of some sort, say a schools inspector or a health inspector. If you tell someone the precise time of an inspection, for example, then it'll inevitably have less of an impact on them. Uh, The danger is that they're just going to carry on as normal and only get their act together as the time approaches. But if you don't tell them, or if you only do spot or random checks, then the people you're inspecting need to be ready every day. By withholding the precise timing, you can make your coming an ever-present reality for them. And likewise with Jesus, 
who also has a good reason for holding back the date. I think it should lead us to thinking like uh, Lord Shaftesbury, the great social reformer of of the 19th century, who's reported to have said, I don't think that in the last 40 years I've ever lived one conscious hour that was not influenced by the thought of our Lord's return. That is the kind of attitude that Jesus is working for. So the end is not yet. What are the consequences of that? The end is not yet, says Jesus. So don't be led astray. Verse 8, watch out that you are not deceived or led astray, says Jesus. Deceivers will come, he warns. And indeed, it seems the first and second centuries were full of people claiming to be the Christ and and bringing the end of all things. And they've continued to come uh, periodically ever since. You might remember last year that that, um, Harold Camping, who prompted billboards earlier this year, in fact, who prompted billboards around the world, predicting the judgment day would begin 21st of May 2011. Well, that day uh, came and went, and he shifted the date then to 21st of October, by which time I think people had stopped listening to him. Apparently he's now admitted that no one can know the exact time of the end. And uh, I think we can be grateful that he has admitted that. Now people have been and still are deceived by such things. So Jesus' warning here remains important and relevant. However, I suspect that one, one, of, I, one of the very few good things about living in a very sceptical and cynical culture like, uh, like the UK is that we're, I suppose we're less likely to be taken in by those kinds of things. Probably we're more likely to be led astray by what Jesus warns us about in verse 9. And it's verse 9 that really sets up our second main point this morning. And this is the point that Jesus seems to be emphasizing in the beginning part of his speech. And it's this, before the end, even right now, there will be trouble. Verse 9 is setting out the basic principle here. When you hear of wars and revolutions, said Jesus, do not be frightened, or perhaps do not be startled. And while we might be startled because the world will be torn apart, says Jesus from verse verse 10. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There'll be great earthquakes and famines and pestilences in various places and fearful events and great signs from heaven. So let's face up to it. Underneath the, the sugar coating that we like to smother everything with at Christmas, this is what our world has been like ever since Jesus spoke. This is what our world is like even today. So as I speak, there are wars all over our planet. Here in, Euro, in, here in Europe, we're on the brink of a financial meltdown, just as we have been for some time, and it's likely to go on for some time into the future. Seven years ago, at Christmas, an earthquake in the Indian Ocean generated a tsunami that killed 230,000 people. Four years later, the Lord's Resistance Army attacked several villages in the Democratic Republic of the Congo, waiting until the people had come together to celebrate Christmas. Their attack was almost unbelievably savage. 400 people were hacked to death, burnt alive in their homes, or horribly mutilated. How's that for peace and goodwill between all men? Happy Christmas. 
And you know well, as well as I do, that those are not isolated horrors. And let's face it too, those things do startle us, don't they? We have such high expectations of peace and prosperity in our time that when these th- terrible things do happen, they, they can come as a huge and unsettling surprise. Uh, these things happen in the world at a distance or, or sometimes, of course, painfully close to us. And we cannot but help think that something has gone dreadfully wrong. Certainly the world looks at these things and mocks the idea of God because of them. There's a famous piece of graffiti uh, from the 1970s, which has been repeated ad nauseum by cynical people ever since. And it goes like this. God is not dead. He is alive and working on a much less ambitious project. And that's a, a jibe that can really hurt, can't it? It really hits home, stunning us into a, a sort of debilitating hopelessness about the future when we see these things happening around us. But look again. Should these things surprise us? Are they unexpected? Have we not been warned? Is it not very clear, verse 9, that these things must happen first? The more we understand it, the less we're going to be taken by surprise. But it's as Jesus focuses down on a, on a particular kind of suffering that we begin to get a glimpse of why there's this delay before the end and, and the kind of opportunities it generates. So look at verse 12, which sets it up. Before all this, says Jesus, they will lay hands on you and persecute you. Now, this special kind of suffering is targeted at the disciples themselves. It begins, Jesus says, before anything else, you're going to be pursued, grabbed, arrested. You're going to be handed over to both religious and civil courts. Charges are going to be brought against you because of your connection to me. This is going to hurt, says Jesus. Verse 16, even the closest to you will hand you over like this, parents, brothers, relatives, friends. And what they hand you over to may even result in your death. This is the sober reality that you must face up to as one of my followers. All men will hate you because of me. Now, it's interesting because Luke doesn't just give us this. He doesn't just give us Jesus' warning about all of this. He gives us example after example after example. The first and most important example, of course, is Jesus himself. Jesus sets the pattern in all of this. Soon after this, he's going to be betrayed by one of his closest friends. He's going to be abandoned by all his other friends. He's going to be taken before a religious court. And then he's going to be taken before a civil court. The whole world... Jew and Gentile together are going to be expressing their hatred for him and they are going to execute him. Now the disciples are slow to pick up on this to begin with, but once they do, Luke's second volume, the book of Acts, has plenty more examples for us. Just as Jesus was persecuted and hated, so were they. As Peter and John before the Sanhedrin, the Jewish religious court in Acts chapter 4, soon they and others are in prison. There's Stephen before the Sanhedrin in Acts chapter 7, and he is stoned to death. 
Later, James and and, uh, the brother of John is put to death with the sword. And the examples go on and on and on, finishing with the Apostle Paul, of course, brought first before the Sanhedrin, and then a whole series of civil courts. And the book ends with him taken to Rome to witness before Caesar. Now, imagine you might be thinking at this point uh, that all this seems quite distant from your own experience. Uh, But don't be too hasty here. Uh, For one thing, Christians in the UK are more and more frequently losing their jobs and or finding themselves in court because of their allegiance to Jesus, for praying with people at work, for talking about their faith, or for taking a stand on certain ethical issues. And that, I guess, will get increasingly more common. Now, that kind of more explicit, formal persecution may only just be creeping back into our country. But you will know that there's plenty of informal persecution around us. Uh, An informal court, if you like, that you might find yourself in. And you may well have experienced that feeling of of being surrounded by um, your colleagues or or, or friends, perhaps, uh, as hostile questioners. Perhaps some, for some reason the topic of conversations drifted onto Christian things and everyone suddenly turns to you. How could you possibly think that, they say? I suppose that kind of persecution may not generally be life-threatening in a physical sense, but because it makes us feel stupid, spiritually speaking, it can be very dangerous indeed. In all these ways, there will be trouble before the end, says Jesus. Beginning right now with this kind of thing, this persecution against you because of me. So what's to be done about it? Well, Jesus is very clear, isn't he? Finally, finally then. So stand firm in your witness. Three final things to say. First, look upon what's happening to you positively. Verse 13, this situation will lead to an opportunity for you to witness Indeed, later in the book of Acts, uh, we discover that one of the main reasons for this delay in the end and for the trouble which comes is to, in fact, generate such opportunities for witness. Second, don't worry about having to prepare something yourself that will win the argument in that situation. Why is that? Well, verse 15, the words you will use will not ultimately come from you, says Jesus He says this, I will give you words of wisdom that none of your adversaries will be able to resist or contradict. Now, what does Jesus mean by that? I wonder, does he mean that we can go into those situations and get utterly unprepared uh, and the words will simply kind of pop into our heads? Well, again, it's the examples in the book of Acts that are very helpful here. Because what we find there is that the Christians in those those situations, those kind of high pressure situations, What they're basically saying in those situations is what they have been taught by Jesus. Either directly in person, like this kind of situation, or in his teaching passed on to them by the apostles. You know, what we we have here in the Bible, in the New Testament especially. In that sense, uh, they were going into those situations very well prepared. Extremely well prepared. And so should we. Nevertheless, it's also true that in the heat of the moment, the Holy Spirit is with them and helping them in the particulars of what to say. And that is great comfort. Helping them note, uh, not necessarily to win the argument. After all, very often they don't win the argument and end up suffering 
or dying as a consequence, but nonetheless helping them to tell the truth, the truth which is, as Jesus says here, in the end, irresistible and undeniable. Thirdly and finally, says Jesus, stand firm. All these things, the delay in the end, the world torn apart, most especially the personal attacks, will be trying to knock you from your trust in me, says Jesus. So stand firm. And even if you are mocked, even if you are ridiculed, even if you're imprisoned, even if everything is taken from you, your family, everything you love, even your life, stand firm and you'll be all right. Seems extraordinary, doesn't it? Even if you are stoned to death like Stephen, verse 18, in the end, not a hair of your head will perish. You will gain life. And once again, it's Jesus who sets the pattern here. He, of course, as we just said, faced the worst betrayal, the worst persecution, multiple trials, severe physical suffering, the most lonely and apparently desperate death. But he stood firm in his purpose and resolve, resolute to the end. And he was vindicated. He was raised to life. And his promise here to those who stand firm in following him is that they will be vindicated too. So here's my Christmas card idea for next year. Uh, My idea is to have Christmas cards with pictures which truly represent the world as we know it. Uh, I may not get away with this, I know, because it would be quite, quite a shocking thing to do. But perhaps I could have some photographs of some, some recent uh, Christian martyrs. Uh, some photographs of some wars, perhaps. A statement saying, war on earth, rather than peace on earth. Perhaps I could have a a graphic picture of a dove being blown into little pieces. To my non-Christian friends, I would put a note inside. If this picture disturbs you, please listen to the Christians. I know you want to ridicule them, but actually they're telling the truth and have the answer. To my Christian friends, I might say, Don't let this picture deceive you. Don't let this picture startle you. Lift your eyes to see the bigger picture. The bigger picture, as we've been seeing this morning, of a a deliberate delay before the end, giving the opportunity to witness in the midst of suffering. And I might write in the card some of what Jesus says here. Or perhaps I might write out the final verse from from Luther's famous hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, which goes like this. God's word forever shall abide. No thanks to foes who fear it. For God himself fights by our side with weapons of the spirit. Were they to take our house, goods, honor, child or spouse, Though life be wrenched away, they cannot win the day. The kingdom's ours forever. Amen.